for the reading of God's Word. We are going through the book of John chapter by chapter, and we are in chapter 17. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Anyone need a Bible? We have some over here, some Bibles over on the other side of the room. All right. Osagi, we have some over there. Okay. A couple, of, a couple right here. You, just keep your, keep your hands up. All right. John chapter 17. This is Jesus, God the Son, praying to God the Father. And we are in verse... Fourteen. John chapter 7, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, and the glory with which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me, loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come in here, Lord, and have a feast. We can have a feast. We can feed on your word. And Lord, we can, what we take in can be as rich as the best meal we've ever had on planet Earth, Lord, when we open up your, 
your Bible, the word of God. We think with Job, Job said, I have desired you more than my necessary food. And oh God, that you would bring us all to that place. (laughs) That when we feast on your word, it's better than any physical feast. And Father, we pray that you would do that today. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit, Lord, to open our eyes, to open our hearts. To open our minds. We come in here with so many prejudices of who you are, of who we are, of who the world is, of what the world is. Make it all clear, Lord. Bring clarity to us today. Father, I pray that for our church and every church declaring your word in the city. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So Jesus here about 12 hours from his crucifixion, he and his disciples have have, uh, left the Last Supper. His instructions to them in John chapter 15 and 16 are apparently on the road, on a walk from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be praying with such agony, with such distress that he's going to be sweating like drops of blood. And, and, and he's there in Gethsemane, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be bound up and led off to be tried and crucified. Now, his very last instruction to his disciples, we read this in John chapter 16, verse 33. Very last instruction that he gives them before he is crucified is at the end of verse 33 there in chapter 16. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. At that moment, understanding the effect that statement was going to have on them, in this world you will have trouble, Jesus breaks out into prayer. Prayer for who? Prayer for them. Prayer for you. (laughs) In this world, you will have trouble. That, That is a sobering statement coming from the Son of God. This is the Son of God here. He's ending his instruction to them by telling them, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Last instruction before he's uh, bound up and taken um, away to be crucified. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And when trouble is upon you and it's shaking you up, you are just being shook, shaken to the core by trouble. Remember that Jesus prayed for you. Actually, the Bible says Jesus is praying for you, current, present tense, but he prayed for you for your time of trouble. And it's all written down here, right in John chapter 17. For you to lay hold of, we take heart that in our trouble, no matter how earth-shaking and severe, 
how hurtful. Jesus prayed for us. And among other things we learn in this prayer, what we learned a few weeks ago, John chapter 17, verse 13, that in the most severe trouble, there's a promise of joy for you. So the verse right before where we started this morning, this is verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they, he's talking about you, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's a promise to you for your time of trouble. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That, that, that you would have, there'd be a fulfillment of joy even in the worst kind of core body soul shaken trouble. You can have fullness of joy. Wow. <laughs> So if you weren't here a couple, few weeks ago, you should uh, listen to that sermon online. So we come to where we start, started this morning in verse 14. This is where our scripture reading began, verse 14. So I'm going to go relatively quickly through verses 14 through 19 um, so we can get to the, what I believe is the heart of what God wants for us this morning in verses 20 through 23. So, so verse 14... 14, Jesus says this. Again, he's praying, God the Son's praying to God the Father. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word. Speaking of his disciples, I've given them your word. We have the word of God because Jesus gave it to us. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now there's an almost identical verse in John chapter 15 verse 19 and I spent a different Sunday morning talking quite a bit about that verse. What are we to make of Jesus is telling us the world is going to hate us. We spent a lot of time on that when we were in the middle of uh, John chapter 15. Anyone remember this quote from that message? This quote. It's from J.C. Ryle. Sean, can we have that? All right. You may remember this. I put this up on the projection screen a couple months ago. If there is anything that true Christians seem to always forget and always need to be reminded of, it is the true feeling of unbelievers towards them. Next page. And the treatment they must expect from them. Let's do that again. Can we go back, Sean? If there is anything that true Christians seem to always forget and always need to be reminded of, it is the true feeling of unbelievers towards them and the treatment they must expect from them. Why are we so prone to forget Jesus' statement that, uh, look, you can expect to be hated? It's because we can't stand the thought of that. We want approval. We want to be liked by everybody. We're obsessed. We're ad addicted to being liked by everyone that we're around. And so we... We just try to push down that truth. Jesus doesn't let us do that. He brings it up in the middle of John 15 and again here in John chapter uh, 17. 
If you're living the word of God, if you're speaking the word of God, you are a reminder to the world, everybody around you, that they have not submitted their lives to God. And they'll hate you for it. As much as we long to be liked by everybody, it is impossible this side of heaven if we're following Jesus, living the word, speaking it, to avoid this. Um, At a minimum, look, um, if, if you haven't experienced hatred towards you, your person, eventually you will if you're, if you're following Jesus, but it, certainly you know that they hate what you believe. <laughs> Unless you've been living in a cave, I hope you figured out that they hate, the world hates what you believe. Now, verse 15. Notice in verse 15 what the solution to that is. What's, what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> that the, the world hates us and hates what we believe. What, what are we supposed to do? Well, I'll tell you one thing you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to leave the world. And that's what he says in, says in verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. <laughs> so it, it, as much as sometimes you may want to escape to Montana with all your Christian friends and live in the woods and just li- live this really cool, happy Christian life, the Bible says that is a big no-no. And there have been hundreds, even thousands of experiments like that in Christianity throughout the ages. I was reading just a while back, there's some new thing where all these Christians are moving to some place in South Carolina. I mean, nothing against South Carolina, uh, but I, I don't want to go to some place in South Carolina where people like that are moving. I'm sorry, that's scary to me. But, but it's going to fail. Every single one of those experiments has failed miserably. Why? Because the Bible, from cover to cover, including right here in John 17, 15, the Bible teaches that that's not God's will for you. That's not God's will for his children. And that is not his heart. Listen carefully. That's not his heart for the world. It's not his heart for the world. What is God's heart for the world? He loves the world. He loves the world. And he wants to save the world, not some of the world, all the world, and he wants to save the world by you sticking around. By you staying in the world. Your job, your school, your neighborhood. God has you just where he wants you. That is where he wants to use you. He wants to save the world by and through you living it out. More on that later. So the rest of John 15, uh, chapter 17, 15 says this, it begins again. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Okay, yet another recent sermon here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, this one was on the study of this same chapter. Uh, Jesus re- prays repeatedly in this chapter to the Father, Keep them, keep them, keep them. Keep them in what? Keep them in their salvation. Keep them in relationship with me, with you. And, 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 and that's a promise too, how God keeps your salvation. 
Jesus prays in in verse 12 of the same uh, uh, chapter. Holy Father, keep through your name, meaning through your love, your power, your wisdom, those whom you have given me. And, And so that includes, verse 15, protecting us from the evil one. The evil one. Ephesians chapter 6 says that when we find ourselves mired in trouble, in battles with people, then people will do that to us. And then we find ourselves in battles with them. Um, it, Ephesians 6.12 says that you don't wrestle with, wrestle with flesh and blood. Meaning your problem is not with that person, that nasty woman, that woman you think is nasty, or that guy you think is that, or that maybe it's the person living in your home, in the same home. Maybe that's the person you're looking at when you wake up in the, in the morning in your bed. You don't wrestle against flesh and, and, and blood, Ephesians 6.12 says. You're, you're wrestling against principalities, powers, against the ruler of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Jesus is here praying for his disciples. He's praying for you that you would be kept from the evil one. Next verse, verse 16. He says, they, who's they? His disciples, and that includes you. They are not of the world. Rather, this is verse 16. Verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the the world. So what does Jesus mean here when he uses the word world? They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Jesus says. What he's talking about here are the systems of the world. And he's talking about the systems of the world and the people who are held captive by those systems. The, 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 the media, political movements, the entertainment industry, the business world, educational systems. Systems which are rooted in values that have either carved God out or they are outright antagonistic to God and his word. That's the world. That's who the world is that he's talking about here. So he, again, he says, he's praying to the Father. He's talking about you. They are not of the world. So listen, now this should be obvious, but it's not obvious at all to many, many, many sitting in churches around this country and may, maybe to some of you today. You are not of the world. <laughs> If you've never heard that before, well, you've heard it now. You've actually read it, and now you're hearing it again. You are not of the world. It is so important that you get that. You're not of the world. Now, some of you may be thinking, and by the way, when I mean that, I mean you're not held captive by the word by the world. You are held captive by God. Now, some of you may be thinking, well. That, that, that scares me a little because, oh man, there's some stuff out there I'm captivated by. I mean, I, I, I watch Dancing with the Stars or I watch American Idol and my, oh, whoa, does that, am I just captivated by that? Am I drawn in? <laughs> or, or 
just the glamour of life, uh, a life comprised of the best things money can buy. You're captivated by that, and you know you are. <laughs> or the whole sports thing. Just, just like the World Cup, might I say that right now? <laughs> Or, or the Super Bowl, or, or, or whatever it is, you just get sucked in so much, it's held you captive. So much so that you're basing decisions off of it. You're captivated by it. And by the way, spoken as a, as really an avid sports fan, that's who I am. But how we are, how the Holy Spirit's telling us this morning how he's telling you, he's telling me, you are not of the world. You need to let go of that. You need to get on your knees and, and repent of, of that. Listen, the, the world was created by God. Don't misunderstand me. The world was created by God for your pleasure. Did you know that? If you're listening to my messages in Deuteronomy that I'm recording and posting online, Deuteronomy is all about that, about how God just wants to bless us with the world. The world can be such a blessing. It really, really can. But listen, you absolutely must keep a light touch on the world. Not be captivated by it. You're called in the Bible a sojourner, meaning a pilgrim, meaning someone who's just passing through. Don't get rooted into something that you've been saved from and that you're only going to be in. For a passing season. Yes, meant to bless you, but to keep a light touch on the blessing. Being captivated by the world. That's not who you are. Quickly, let's look at um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. It says this. Consider this. All that is in the world. Speaking about those systems that we've talked about. All that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Now, what you don't want to do is look at a verse like this and do what religious people have done throughout all history and become a world hater. Listen, please don't do to the world, what the world is doing to you. The, the world may hate you, but don't become one of these religious knuckleheads who's hating the world back. Oh, the world is just so filled with the, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And, 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 and believe me, they will pick that up. God loves the world. Again, more of that, that's where we're going to. That's the heart of the message today. He loves the world. But it's important if we're going to have a, an effect on the world that we understand that we're not of it. We, we got something so much better than that, a place that, that, that we can experience the fullness of God's joy. Why do we want the world when we can have that? And so um, let's move on. Verse 17 very important verse, although we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. It says, sanctify. Remember, Jesus is praying to the Father here, sanctify them. Who's he, who's he talking about? He's talking about you, 
more immediately, the disciples around him, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the root word for that word sanctify is the word holy. Please don't just read a word like sanctify and what, what on earth does that mean? Just run right by it. Forget about it. It's an important word. It means the word holy. Some of your translations actually may say make holy. Make them holy by your truth. The truth is what? It's the, it's the word of God. It's the word of God. But, but, but the word holy Make them holy by your truth. The word holy, remember, it means separate. It means different. It means separate. So when you hear the word God is holy, it's not like this angry God who is, you know, devoid of, uh, that's what oftentimes people think of, uh, of God as sort of an angry God who is perfect in his morality. He doesn't lie. He doesn't um, cheat. He doesn't steal, these type of things. Holiness is so much, something so much different than that. Holiness is everything God is. His love, full of love, full of joy, full of peace. He's everything God is, full of full of uh, holy wrath, full of justice, full of kindness, forgiveness. But that's just so different in contrast to the rest of the world. He's holy. And, and what, what, what Jesus is praying for here, God, do that to them, to you, to these people sitting here this morning. Do that to him by your word. <laughs> By your word, by your truth. Now, in chapter 14, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. So another way of saying this prayer is this. By the Holy Spirit, through the word, make them holy. Make them like you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, that you and I were being transformed into the likeness of Christ from glory to glory. So how does that happen? by the Holy Spirit through his word. And Jesus is praying, by the Holy Spirit through the word, make these people different. Now he's going to be going on to say, so the world which you love, God, will, will, will notice and change and believe on you. So this is all leading up to that, but, but, but that, that's the prayer here. Now, in verse uh, 18, it, uh, he goes on. He, he, remember, this is the prayer. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also may be sanctified by the truth. And so the idea here of Jesus sanctifying himself, now read this carefully. I'm hoping you're thinking to yourself, okay, this is strange. What do you mean in verse 18 or rather verse 19 that what does Jesus mean that he has to sanctify himself? I thought he is holy. Well, I thought you just said, Pastor Steve, that whole sanctification is making holy. Well, the, the idea, what Jesus is, uh, the idea here is when Jesus says, I sanctify myself so they can be sanctified, what he's talking about is he's preparing himself for the cross. He's preparing himself for the cross. And, and, 
And how does the Son of God prepare himself for the cross? By, by being tempted in every single way that you have been, yet without sin. See, in the Old Testament, uh, the, 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 there was lamb sacri- sacrifices, sacrifices of lambs. And before those lambs were sacrificed, um, at the altar, at the tabernacle, before they were sacrificed, they were br- the lambs were brought before the priest, and the priest examined the lamb that was about to be sacrificed. The priest did not sacrifice, rather the priest did not examine the person offering the lamb because they would have just seen nothing but imperfections. Like, thank God God doesn't look at you or me. He looks at the lamb that was sacrificed for us. But the same thing in the Old Testament. So if a lamb had diseased skin, if a lamb didn't have an eye, if a lamb had one leg shorter than the other, that lamb would, would not be allowed for sacrifice. And so Jesus, in order to go to the cross, he had to sanctify himself in this sense. He had to make himself holy, meaning completely different than anyone else who had ever lived or whoever will lived, tempted in every way that you have been, but yet without sin. And so he, he, what, he's, what he's praying for is, now, he's praying about it, he says, I, now I, I'm sanctifying myself, I'm preparing myself for the cross, that they may be sanctified or, or made holy. That's the idea there. And so in verse 20, and this is the next few verses, is really where I believe the Lord uh, wants us to focus on today. Verse 20, he continues his prayer. He says, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who is that? Someone shout it out. Right, you. He's talking about you here. In a sense, the the whole prayer um, is for anybody who's Jesus' disciples, but right here specifically, he's praying for you. He's thinking about you 2,000 years ago when he's praying. Again, verse 20. I do not pray for these, these 11 men around me alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So let's pay real attention there. This, is, this prayer was for you. Jesus had you on his mind when he prayed these next few verses. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Okay. So, you know, my my life's all about the Word of God. And and I hope you're there too. I hope God's bringing you to that place where you're all about the Word of God. God, I tell you, when when I'm reading these verses over and over, preparing for this message, these verses blow me 
away. <laughs> they, 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 they are just, they're just stunning to me. These three verses, what he's praying for here to the Father. Remember, this is the end. This is this, is this last prayer his. He's going to be praying also in the garden. There's a completely different subject. But for you, he's praying for you, praying for his disciples. And this is what he is finishing up with, is stunning to me. Now, before we get into the heart of these verses, what, when you pray, what do you, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? You pray for what you want. That's what you pray for. And you know something? That's it's not a bad thing. <laughs> now, as, if you're newer in your faith, as you're growing in, throughout your years and you're growing up in Christ and your relationship with God, you know, you're also praying for things that you don't want to pray for, but you know the Bible says you're supposed to pray for. You know, you know that person that that hates you or spitefully use you, that person who's your enemy, the Bible says that you're supposed to pray for them. And so you're praying, God, I don't like this prayer and I don't want to, but you tell me to. And I, so I pray for this person who's backstabbing me at work or whatever. And as you grow in the Lord, eventually God's heart and your heart get aligned and you, you're actually wanting to pray things like that. I, I'm not there yet. I'm not. But I'm in a, such a different place that I was 25 years ago. But hear, hear me out here. Supremely, God wants you praying just about things you want to pray for, but of course, he wants to align his heart with your heart. Jesus, he's perfect. He's praying for what he wants. This is what Jesus wants. And he's praying about it. And what does he pray? He prays three times. Not once, not twice, but three times that you would be one with one another. United with one another. Again, it says, verse 21, that they may be one. Verse 22, again, that they may be one. Verse 23 takes it one step further, that they may be made perfect in one. I'm stunned by that. I, 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 I am amazed at that. Now remember in chapter 16, Verse 33. So Jesus is praying what he really, really, really wants here. Remember how he wrapped up the last chapter? Verse 33. Last words of instructions to his disciples. He says, in this world you will have trouble. And so Jesus is now praying this. He prays it three times. He knows that a church that is one. A church that is united. A church where there's not division. A church that lays all their differences aside. That forgives each other rather than holds on to grudges. That submits to one another rather than insisting on always getting their way. That, that prays for each other. That serves each other. That holds up each other. Jesus knows that church. A church that is united can withstand any kind of trouble that comes against them 
and actually much more, that church will demolish the gates of hell. I mean vanquish, demolish, destroy the gates of hell and be an overpowering reflection of the glory of God on planet earth. Consider this. And stay with me now. These guys, there's 11 guys listening to this prayer. They're all listening to this prayer. There's 11 guys. Judas had left in, in, in John chapter 15 to betray Jesus. There's 11 left and they're listening to this prayer, prayer. They had just been arguing with one another at the Last Supper who would be the greatest. That's what they had just been doing. And, and if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what they did throughout the whole three years. They're, they're, they're arguing with one another, who's the greatest? And you think, and you say to yourself, like, who would ever do that? Like, that's so crazy. I mean, like, arguing out loud, who's the greatest? Hey, listen, you're thinking the same thing. You're just not talking about it. You and I, that's what we're like. You're looking at others and, and, and elevating ourselves above them. I mean, you know, sometimes I, I know guys on the basketball court, it's after the game, and they're, I'm better than you, no, I'm better than you. But, you know, sometimes it's out loud. But most of all, it's just in our heart. Jesus is praying for them here after witnessing three years of them bickering and arguing who is the greatest. He's praying that they would be one. And consider this. After this point, you will not see a single example of these guys arguing with each other ever again. Ever again. These guys who could not stop arguing. When, let me, when Jesus prays something for you, you, you can take it to the bank as a, as a promise for you, as a promise, we can take it to the bank as a promise for our church. Why does Jesus want this? I, I think of my own family. I have five children, ages 16 through 25. And I can tell you, nothing blesses me more than seeing the love and unity between my children. And it's been like this their whole lives. I mean, when they're upset about something, they go to each other. When their dad's a jerk, one of my kids is calling the other kid, get on the phone and telling him. Uh, about it. When, when, when they have great news, they're telling each other. When they're weeping, they're weeping with each other. I knew nothing of that growing up. I did not grow up in a Christian family. My two brothers and I, we fought like cats and dogs all, until all of us left the home. That's, that's all we knew. And just also observing my extended family, -Christian fam non-Christian family, particularly on one side of the family, just nonstop arguing, ignoring each other, just nonsense. 
Now, praise the Lord, my brothers and I, we all, got, we all got saved by God in our early 20s, and it's completely different today. But I knew nothing of that, and just seeing my kids, just loving each other, just it's such a blessing to me. So why does, why does Jesus want this? Why is he praying about this? One of them is because it blesses him when his children are loving on each other in spite of the fact there may be some egregious betrayal or sin or maybe some brother, sister's not, you know, has, has done something and they refuse to apologize but yet there's the, this is a love continues, the forgiveness continues. That blesses his heart because you're the family, you're his family, you're his children. But listen, believe it or not, we just read it. There's something so much more going on here. So much, so much more, so much more powerful than just God being delighted because we're all getting along. And what is that? Again, verse 23 says what? It's, Jesus says, I pray that they're all one so that the world may know that you sent me. Number two, so that the world may know that you love them as you have loved me. So we've broken down the verse right here. This is verse uh, 23 of John 17. Again, Jesus prays, I pray that they may be all be one so that the world would, two things, know that you sent me. Somehow, when a church puts down their whatever weapons of warfare against each other, that's usually our tongue, originates in our heart, and, and, and makes an intentional commitment to love one another in spite of what race you are, in spite of, of what color you are, in spite of what socioeconomic uh, economic background you are. That somehow when the world walks into this room and sees us, we're, we're from every conceivable place in the world, and it sees us loving on one another in spite of the fact we're very opinionated about what worship we like. We're very opinionated about what, you know, what we eat, what we talk about when we're around each other. We're very opinionated about the right way to do things. Maybe even are very opinionated about politics, whatever. We are loving one another and forgiving. Somehow when the world sees that, they know that God the Father sent the Son. Now that is heavy. <laughs> and they know that God loves us, them meaning us, as God has loved Jesus. Now it sounds as crazy as crazy can possibly sound. But did you know that you can actually, with all humility, go up to someone, anyone, and say, God loves me as much as Jesus Christ? Look, it, I didn't make this stuff up. It's what verse 23 says. <laughs> it's what the verse says. Famous verse, John 13, 35. By this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for 
one another. Listen, the world wants something better. The world wants something better. Jesus says that, I pray, Father, that they would all be one. And twice he says that they may know that you sent me. They want something better. The world's sick and tired of all the fighting, all the division. They're looking for something better. And when they come into a church, this church or any other church who's seeking hard after God, and they see people getting along with each other, loving one another, despite of all the differences, and there's so many, and we're a fallen people, and we got all kinds of imperfections. We are a hospital of sinners, not a museum of saints. When you get a bunch of sinners together and they're loving each other, somehow, that's what the world wants. It, It wants something different. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What kind of love? You know, know, when we try to think of the love of God, you know what we so often do? We try to figure out what the love of God is by how people love each other, by what we see in the world. We try to figure out God in that way. And, And for example, we're so used to We're so used to being loved by someone based upon what we do for that someone. We we do this for them, we do that for them, and they love us. But that's so far from the love of God because he loves us despite what we do. Or else we may know, we may have a grandmother that just loves us intensely. Just the sweetest, most relentlessly loving grandma or friend, or maybe it is a brother, sister, or friend. And and we think, well, that must be how God loves us. That has not even scratched the surface that God's love is for you. Hasn't even scratched the surface. Verse 24 says this, when he's talking about the world coming in and seeing oneness and seeing you loving one another and as a result, believing the gospel that the Father sent the Son, so loved the world that he sent the Son to die for the world, he's talking about a completely different kind of love. Look at the end of verse 24. Jesus is saying to God, end of John chapter 17, verse 24, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So I've been married for 30 years. I've been loving my wife for 31 years. God's been loving the Son, and the Son has been loving God for eternity. Look at verse 26. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So the love that, that, you're spo- that we are really commanded to love each other with is not our grandma's love. That's not going to impress the world. No matter how good she is, no matter how perfect, how relentless she is, it's something much deeper. It's the love 
that God has been loving, God the Father has been loving the Son, and God the Son has been loving the Father for all eternity. Now we were, we were discussed this when we were discussing joy in the same way. That sermon on joy a few weeks ago. God is filled with joy more a billion times more than any human being can ever be filled with joy. Where's that joy come from? It predated the earth. He's been joyful in the Son. The Son's been joyful in the Father for all eternity. And I talked about this book. Again, Delighting in the Trinity. We're thinking about going through this in a book club, by the way. And I love the subtitle. And I said I love the subtitle three weeks ago, and I'll say I love the subtitle today. The subtitle is An Introduction to the Christian Faith. <laughs> a teaching on the Trinity. And, and really, what it's such a fabulous book that really the core of the book is just discussing how before the world was ever created, there was the Father loved the Son, the Son was loving the Father, it was all happening by the operation of the Holy Spirit, and this has been going on for all eternity, and guess what? On planet Earth, we get the beneficiaries of the love and joy that's just overflowing out of their relationship. That's the kind of love that God wants us loving each other. Let, let me tell you, the love of our grandma, it's incredibly great. But when there's serious, serious issues, that's not gonna cut it. <laughs> so Calvary Chapel in the city. Some of you have heard before, but before the church ever started, the Lord told me over and over and over again, we would be a house of prayer for all nations. That's what, G, that's what was told me. And so no uncertain terms, over and over again. And he's done that. And, but he's going to continue. And he's, he, he's continuing that work, and it, it, he's going to grow the work. But a house of prayer for all nations, that's what Jesus, going into the temple, they had made it a den of thieves. He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer of all nations. You have made it into a den of thieves. You're obsessed about money. But you don't have a house of prayer of all nations unless people are loving themselves in a way radically different than any other human being, including grandma or brother or friend or whatever, can ever love each other. Listen, I grew up in the western suburbs of Boston, white, affluent. I don't know what it's like to grow up black. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to grow up in the hood. I don't know what it's like to go into a store and thinking, is that person following me because I'm black? I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. And guess what? I'm not going to be able to come together with someone who grew up in the hood. I spent a, by the way, I've spent a lot of time in the hood. <laughs> went to a high school that 40% of the school was from the hood. But, 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 I, but, but I'll never be able to understand what it's like to be them. And that's why grandma's love's not going to work. Something else has to work. In this church, we have people who are PhDs and GEDs, okay? And... The PhDs have a lot more to learn from the GEDs than the other way around. And I really mean that. 
But if the world is going to come in here and see us it, it, and, and, and become convinced, if an unbeliever has going to come in here and become convinced that the Father sent the Son, which, by the way, we've had a few of those in the last month, praise God, people coming, converting to Christ right here in this room in the last couple of months. But the only way they're going to believe that the Father sent the Son is somehow you get to get rid of that craziness that the world wants to, to tell you that we can never come together and love on each other. Never going to happen. And the great thing is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've seen it happen here, but God wants to do such a deeper work. We live in a hardened, hardened world, country, and much of what this country believes and acts out originates in this city, in this city. When I'm talking about the world, it originates in the 60 universities that are in our metropolitan area. Very, very hard. But let me tell you, the love and power of God. Jesus prays it three times. Is this a serious subject or what? Three times he's wrapping up his prayer for us. He's praying that they may be one, that they may be one, that they may be one. And listen, we can lay hold on that promise. We can lay hold on it and believe it and experience it. And oh, the joy that happens when a church comes together as diverse as we are, uh, we are at this church and loves on each other. I'm going to call the worship team up here one last uh, one last point. We're going to have uh, communion this morning or this afternoon. One last point um, as the worship team uh, comes up here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, verse 12 says this. It says, for as the body is one. Now that body, that means you. This is talking here about the local church. This is not talking, I believe, here about the church's law. It's talking about a church like ours. In other places in Scripture, it talks, when it speaks of the body, it's talking about basically Christians everywhere. I believe this is, he's talking right here to the Corinthian church. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And so hear me out here. When you come to Jesus Christ believing that you are a sinner, meaning you have rejected God, you're worthy of punishment, you're worthy of hell, and you understand that Jesus came to this world to live a perfect life on your behalf and that he died for your sin and the, and the punishment of God all came down on Jesus for your sake. And then he rose from the dead. The Bible says at that point... For some of you, it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, the last few months. At that point, the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, comes and occupies, possesses your life. And at that moment, you are one, literally a one, with every other Christian on planet Earth. And you're at one with every other Christian in this room.
So it says here, can I get uh, 1 Corinthians up again? For as the body is one, listen, you're one with each other, but the decision of whether to act as one is yours. <laughs> you can do what so many do. They come into churches and they basically say, no, I'm not, just not going to do that. I know I, that, that person, I'm not dealing with that person. That sister, that brother, that guy who backstabbed me, or that, that person who, who's a white snob, or that guy from the hood who thinks he knows everything, that, the, you know, that uh, person from the Dominican public, Republic that, that's so loud. There's no Dominicans like that, but, but you know what I mean. You have a choice of whether to simply act out what is already true. And communion, which is where we're at right now, having communion, is what purchased it all for us. Remember what Jesus said. I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified. I am making myself ready for the cross that they may be made holy, that they may be made different, that they would look different than the whole world which is beating each other up, uh, that they would look different than that. They would come together. It's all about communion. It's all about the blood. It's all about the bread. About, uh, rather, all about the blood and all about the, all about the body. The cup representing the blood, the bread representing his body. So what I want to do at this point, I just want to, as we prepare our hearts for communion, and that's what the Bible says we need to do, you, I, all of us, we need to do, but, but anytime we take communion, we need to prepare our hearts for communion, remembering that, that blood purchased this blessing for us and what I'm talking about today is I'm talking about that oneness that we can experience and have joy in what I want to do is pray uh, as the worship team starts and uh, you can either pray by yourself or my preference is, is you just grab the person right next to you whether you know them or not you may know them real well and let's just pray just pray about the Lord completing this work in your heart and the Lord completing this work in our church. So let's take some time to do that. And then um, after a few minutes, if you can just go back, we have tables in the back with uh, cups and with bread. If you can just go back in your leisure, grab one and come back and we will have communion together. So let's do that.